if we dip into stronger lofts and things like that, that lower the spin and make the shot go further, that looks great on the range, but that's not how we play golf. Because as soon as your golf ball hops over into the first cut, we lower that spin from there. And now you've got this ball coming in hot and you're trying to play an elite schedule. If that whole location's in the front tucked or the greens are firm, you can't stop the golf ball like you're playing competitor can. This is The Tournament Code. We appreciate you taking the time to join us, Corey. We know a little bit about your role right now with Titleist, but before we start with Titleist and Auburn and Guilford, for all that, let's just start with the beginning. How'd you get into golf? Yeah, I was, um, I guess, probably seven years old and... You know, I was an active kid, like anything I could do, just, you know, outside all day, playing four different sports, come in, change my clothes from football stuff to basketball stuff to whatever. And then about seven years old, I I started, my dad started teaching me just kind of how to grip it a little bit, you know, and he was leaning on instructional. He was a guy that didn't pick up the game till he was in his late twenties. And then I probably, I started taking some lessons that year with the local pro and probably got out on the golf course when I was eight years old, a year of that or so, and then start to kind of enter some nine hole junior stuff and and go from there. But, you know, I continued to play soccer. I continued to play basketball all the way into high school. And, and golf was, was kind of something else there just for somebody who was, who loved sports. I loved being competitive in anything. I mean, in sixth grade, we didn't have sixth grade sports. So I joined the academic team just so I could be on a team, you know, and that's kind of how I was wired as a kid, just whatever I could do to be competitive. So that's kind of how golf was for me. Now having some some hindsight as to things I could have done differently. Um, the one thing I wouldn't change, though, is just always being super competitive in everything I did. So you ended up playing yep. golf at Transylvania University. And what was it about golf that stuck out to you that made you eventually specialize in that sport? Yeah, it's hard to say. Kind of topped out at six foot. So the basketball thing started becoming harder and harder. So my my freshman year at Transylvania, my high school team won the state championship. So I had some some guys back there that were a little younger than me, a little better than me. Um, and so that that helped a little bit on, on moving me in the golf direction. But no, hey, I, you know, I tried to kind of do a little bit of everything there. And, and um, I had a great, you know, just Brian Lane was was the difference maker. You know, I got a chance to, to meet him in the recruiting process. And I was just because of what I mentioned, how competitive I was, I I did know I wanted to go somewhere where I was going to be able to contribute to the team's success or, or the team's failure, either one. But, uh, you know, getting to know Brian through the process, we I think we came in as he was building that program and probably had five freshmen in the lineup um, a lot of my, my freshman year. So we were kind of a new group that, that I think he, he knew when he recruited us that we were going to get a chance to – to come in and play immediately. So yeah, I ended up there and I had a great four years uh, as far as I had a lot of growing up to do, a lot of learning to do, but you know, no regrets with any of it. I've, I've, I've been fortunate to have some good, uh, good steps along the way. And, and I think that was probably a, a key piece to it. Yeah. Absolutely. And it seems like, you know, talked about growing up, finding things to do. And while you were at Transy, it seems like, seemed like you improved some over the course of time i mean you were three-time all-conference there and for the for those who don't know transylvania's a d3 school in lexington kentucky so we're familiar with it we know coach lane known him a long time and he's a great guy so it's good to have it's good to have coaches who are great guys because a lot of guys go to school and oh like coaches this coaches that like coach lane's a coach lane's a great guy and a great guy to learn from so it's cool you got that experience tell us a little bit about the growth that happened over that time and how college golf was just different than high school golf. Yeah, probably, um, probably didn't grow as fast as I should have during that time, to be honest with you, you know, probably too many days at Keeneland should have been hitting more balls, uh, down the road at man of war on some of those days, you know, but, uh, that's part of the learning curve and that's part of kind of what inspired me to, to get into coaching is, you know, to try to help, I think that's one of the biggest things that, that I see with junior players or even college players. 
is not being willing to sacrifice now for the betterment of the future. Um, it's hard. It's hard as a young person, right? You get pulled in a lot of different directions, distractions, things like that. And, and not that Brian was awesome. And, and I think he, he did as much as he could. But looking back, like, I wish I would have practiced a little bit more. Maybe wish I would have studied a little harder. All those things, right? Um, but Transylvania was a great academic school, pushed me academically. It was all I wanted to get through there in four years. So the whole thing, I think, made me, you know, really kind of form me into a good place to for the next chapter after after that but along the way you know i definitely made some some steps got a little better still knowing what i know now kick myself that i i could have i could have been even better you know um so but um but it was good it was good experience so you talked about that next chapter after college and you've done a lot of different things inside the golf world so why don't you kind of talk about what you did right out of college and you know, did you always think that you would be in the golf world after college or was that sort of realization once it started to take place? Yeah. So business management major didn't really know exactly the route I wanted to go. You know, business made a lot of sense to me. I was always able to kind of wrap my head around it. But ultimately, I'll tell you what got me started coaching was Brian Lane. And just what we talked about, the, the period of me growing up a little bit, wasn't a, wasn't a bad kid in college, but just I needed to grow up a little bit, right? And, and what I liked about Brian was he was always a positive influence without it being like a sit-down meeting or us having to have a talk. I think he just kind of led by being a good example and, and, and you know maybe even at times when we're on trips when he may think we're not watching him, just little things, how he treated people, how he treated the waitress, how he treated, you know, somebody um, going in and thinking the head pro, things like that. So what I took away from that was, for me, how valuable that period was, you know, from 18 to 22, where we're all trying to find ourselves. We don't, like, we kind of come off tough and all that, but we're, we're still kids, right? We're trying to find our way. So what better than to get into coaching and try to be that positive influence for, you know, what could be 10 to 12 kids every year, you know, with four or five new ones showing up every year and just be a chance to just kind of be that, that positive light, even as indirectly as it may be, that may help the the next young man that followed kind of my shoes where grew up a lot and, and um, I think was a, was a better person when I came out of my four years at school. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit how that manifests itself. You know, you want to help people, you're in the golf world. Tell us about how that started for you and what kind of some of the steps were. Yeah. So I, um, you know, after I finished up, uh, I kind of played a few events that summer and then um, I was teaching some lessons, some clinics at Man of War Golf. And, um, you know, and then Brian had also asked me to come on and be an assistant coach there at Transylvania. Uh, he also has basketball duties as well. And, um, so it was actually a great opportunity for me because there was an overlap there with basketball and golf where he was, he was pretty tied up. So it kind of allowed me to have the team on my own a little bit. And so, you know, and then on the side, I'm kind of, I'm working with, you know, kids clinics, adult clinics, uh, it's 2008, 2009 there. So the TPI world is taking off a little bit with the golf fitness side. And so I've gone and done certifications in that at this point. And so I'm, you know, TrackMan was just coming along. We had this awful launch monitor at Man of War Golf. We were doing some club fittings and stuff with, so I'm kind of doing all these things. And I'm like, you know, I think just the move here, I think it's just to coach college golf. Like I'm already doing all this all encompassing stuff. That's pretty much what coaching is. Let's, let's kind of make a move there. And, and, you know, got a call when I was 24. So I my second season, um, kind of helping Brian at, at Transylvania. Um, I got a call from Guilford college that was interested in talking to me. Um, I'd played against Guilford, um, in the national championship, um, a couple times they'd won three national championships, I think at that point and went down and kind of checked everything out and got offered the job at the, you know, on my way back to the airport. And, um, 
Yeah, so started started there at Guilford College and had to pay extra when we flew in and, and rented a car because I wasn't 25 yet. So I was a young coach and and uh, it was, you know, uh, I'll take the, the flattering moments of still being confused as one of the players back then. But yeah, and it's, you know, the the long story is, uh, the long story short is had a, had a good run there, started working all of Jerry Haas's camps at Wake Forest that was only, you know, 40 minutes down the road. Became really close with, with Jerry and, and his assistant then, Dan Walters, and Nick Kleinert at Auburn. His alma mater is Wake Forest. So when the opening came at Auburn, I remember looking down at my phone and Jerry's calling me and he's saying, hey, this is a great opportunity for you. And I think in return, he's calling Nick saying, hey, I've got somebody for you. And every, you know, that one and, and even on into this chapter has all been the cliche saying of all about who you know and just somebody looking out for you. So um, that's kind of how that door opened up and seven years in Auburn. And and now this is coming up on, on two years at uh, being with Titleist. And I live in Dallas now. So been uh, probably the luckiest guy you've had had on this show, you know, just to, uh, and I've had some really fortunate breaks, some good bounces along the way. That's, that's what it takes in life. And I, I like that you made the long story short and let's take a little bit and make the short story long uh, for a bit and talk a little bit about that Guilford time, because, you know, as a, as a young guy, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot to figure out. Even when you turn 23, you don't figure out the keys to life and it can take a lot, especially when you're dealing with people that are, you know, two or three or four or five years younger than you, it's hard to be both like in charge of them. And also you really feel like you're their peer. Now to them, like they, a lot of times they'll feel like, oh man, he's so much older than us, but you can, you, it's pretty easy to remember when you were a few years younger. So you get to Guilford, you're head coach there. And for people who don't know, like sometimes D, I think in a sense, D3 a lot of times gets a bad, rap like is it is it always the highest level of competition like top to bottom it's not necessarily the same as d1 but a lot of those top d3 schools a lot of those guys could play other places maybe not initially out of high school some some of them could some of them couldn't some chose to go there but like as time goes on a lot of those top ones could go on and play at other levels and have gone on to play at higher levels on Corn Ferry, Corn Ferry, PGA Tour, etc. Yeah. And Guilford's one of those places, again, for people who don't know where, um, as you said, like multiple national championships. And when I was looking at going to different schools, that was one of the top D3 schools. So tell us a little bit about stepping into the shoes there and figuring out how to be a head coach. Yeah. And you're kind of spot on there. I, I do feel like at the division three level, it's, um, it's very top heavy. Uh, so you've got, you know, probably 20 to 25 schools. It just seems like year in year out separate themselves versus, you know, the division one landscape where, you know, it, this could, it could be a team that makes a run at nationals. And then the next year they're fighting to stay inside the top 100 ranking, right? It's just a, it's a different depth there. But I did find at the top with those guys, what I had to offer them was I had to try to find those super competitive guys too, that they just wanted to win a championship regardless of, of maybe what was printed on it, right? And so they, they had some offers to go to some places and they knew maybe those places might be a long shot for them to play. But they, you know, I, I sold them on the fact that they could come here, we could compete, and we could compete for national championships. You know, the highest, the, the trophy at the, the highest level of our level. And so, but I, I was young and, and I think the, the biggest thing I could offer those guys was just things I had learned, you know, trying to, to go through these four years and, and not have a lot of regrets at the end, using your time wisely, um, having some structure, being accountable. I hadn't been exposed yet to all the, the fortunate time I've had with great instructors and great information. I mean, I was, I was helping guys with, with basic fundamentals, you know, managing the golf course a little bit, alignment, things like that. But um, the biggest thing I think I had to offer them was, was just uh, somebody who had recently been in their shoes and, and could help 
you know, them kind of make better decisions and, and get the most out of their four years. So at the end of it, they, they felt like they did everything they could to be successful in the golf course and in the classroom and, and, and have a great college experience as a whole. As part of that, you know, you got to help people along, try to make things easy on players as far as helping, helping them out. And it sounds like to a degree, you were kind of a player's coach. Tell us a little bit about what tournament prep was like at Guilford. We'll talk a little bit about Auburn too. We'll talk a little bit because we talked with Grayson Huff. He had great things to say about you and how you worked with him and the team as far as preparing people. But at Guilford, tell us a little bit about how you prepared for tournaments and what you were working on with players, especially given, you know, compared to Auburn, the lack of resources at Guilford might be a little noticeable. Yeah. I mean, so for any college player or junior player that's listening out there, as you know, typically you get one practice round for, for a college event. PGA Tour guys, they they roll in on sometimes Sunday night, Monday morning, and they can get three days out there, especially for a PGA Tour rookie. That's huge because you're just trying to trying to figure out where the locker room is, right? And and where you got to go to to do an interview and things like that. But for college golf, you get one practice round day. And so that's an extremely important day. And when you, you know, you don't have the budget at a division three school, like you do at a, at an SEC school that I was at later. But, um, so a lot of those days are probably leaving early that morning, getting to traveling in the car for maybe three, four hours and, and teeing it up sometimes at 3 PM all the way till dark. And, you know, you're trying to learn the golf course and guys are, they've been in the car for four or five hours. They're you know, trying to find their golf swing, their body doesn't feel great, but you're just trying to get them to understand, like, that's not the point of today. Like, today is not about how well you're hitting driver. Today is trying to figure out that while it's calm here right now, it's going to be blowing into your face tomorrow. And now that bunker you just hit it over is is not going to be, you're not going to be able to do the same thing, right? Things like that. And just getting there, trying to keep their focus in practice rounds, you know, because it is such a short window and, and the only day you're going to get to prep the golf course, just, you know, starting to teach them stop hitting putts to, to the flag today. Like we don't, we may not know where the holes are going to be, but I can tell you the one place it's not going to be is where the holes cut right now. So stop wasting time. You know, just little things like that was, was a lot of our prep, you know, making sure guys are getting, you know, we're like we're eight holes in and nobody's hit a bunker shot yet. Like let's, the sand is different here than it is in Greensboro. Let's get in there. Let's figure out what's going on. Just, just trying to, to hurt them a little bit. I think was, was the best way just keep them on track. So have some fun. Usually try to switch it up the last three holes to, you know, low man on the last three picks dinner, whatever it is, you, just to try to get in a little bit of competitive mode, knowing that the next morning we're going to turn around and, it's time to count a score. So, um, but you know, had some fun with them. Um, I was definitely probably a, a player's coach there. And, but just, uh, just trying to kind of keep the rails up for them a little bit, keeping them moving the right direction without getting too sidetracked. Sorry. It's all good stuff. And Daniel was talking earlier, how we talked to Grayson Huff and we also talked to Jan Butler, who both currently play yeah. under coach Kleinard and something they talked about was just the culture that he's built there. And how everybody on that team is rooting for each other. Nobody's, you know, looking for each other to play bad so that they can boost themselves up. Why don't you talk about just the culture of Auburn and the Auburn golf team? And what did you use from your experience being the head coach at Guilford once you moved into that role? Yeah, um, there is there is a different feeling um even if there's some some aspiring coaches on here there's, there's a different feeling laying down at night when when you're the head coach and when you're the assistant when you're the head coach like you know everything ultimately comes down on you when you're the assistant it's like especially nick's so good at his job it's like i lay down at night and i'm like nothing's gonna fall through the cracks he's gonna catch it before a disaster happens when i was at guilford i'm laying there like like transcripts on recruits, everything's going through your mind. Like I got to, you know, so it, it's different there, but that was, I think that was a big reason Nick wanted to hire me was head coaching experience because you've got to make decisions and you've, you've got to be decisive as a head coach. You know, sometimes you make the wrong decision 
but you at least do it in a decisive manner. And that that's kind of, that's important sometimes in, in leading some guys. But, um, you know, the, the culture at Auburn, it's not because it's Auburn. It's not because it's, it, it takes a lot of work to have a, a strong culture. It, it doesn't happen by accident. You know, I, I think that people, golf coaches spend a ton of time. I mean, it is, it is a lot of time that's poured into building a program like that. And just the, the constant, you know, there, there's so many things. It just never ends on trying to build culture and, and getting the right guys, having them understand uh, the long-term goals for each of them as a player and understanding that this is just a vehicle to help them reach their goals is, is hard. It's an individual sport. But um, it was something that we did a lot of team building stuff with. Uh, we spent some time with with an author, John Gordon, um, who helped these guys. We did some exercises there that, you know, allowed these guys just to explain who they are as a person, what kind of makes them tick a little bit, what inspired them as a, as a young player. And, and when you when you know more about the guy sitting beside you, you pull for him a little bit more, just like you're, you know, one of your siblings. I mean, you, you know everything about him. You know, you, you start to, to love that guy and, and you know that you're going to have to battle it out a little bit, but you want it to be because you shot 67, um, not because he shot 75 that, uh, that you go to that next tournament. And so just just trying to make it competitive, and, and But then also, you know, this was the last chance for these guys to be a part of a team. You know, unless you you can, I guess you could go to live and be part of a team now. But that's a, that's a whole other uh, discussion. But, um, yeah, this is the last chance where you're going to go and you're going to come to 18 green. And if you're the last guy out, you're probably going to have four or five of your teammates sitting around the green, their parents sitting around the green pulling for you. Um, that next level, like, your girlfriend's going to be there and maybe your parents and that's about it. Everybody else is going to hope you shoot 78 and miss the cut and, and go on. So just getting the guys to embrace that is, is something that's huge. And, and something that I, I think, you know, somebody like Grayson, you know, he, he really, that, that was one of his favorite things was just the team environment. And so it's after, after, well, Grayson held on to it for about six years, but, you know, so after after that time is done, it's it's um, it's something you don't ever get back. So um, we spent a lot of time just just making sure that locker room uh, pushed each other, but but tried to love each other as well. Absolutely, that's an important thing to have in a team, especially a golf team, because golf's you know such an individual sport. You go out there, and everybody has different days, and like in qualifying, especially you know everybody everybody has a different day. And even in tournaments, like the team can win and that's a good day usually for everybody and the team can lose. And that that is usually not a good day for everybody, but somebody probably had a good day. So making sure that in either case, the people aren't necessarily too focused on themselves and focused on the important thing, which is the team. And by pushing the team, by pushing each other, getting each other better, that's a tough message to get through to guys, but also obviously a vital one. When it comes to picking out players saying, hey, like I want them to be part of this team, I'm recruiting people, all that kind of stuff. In your role as coach, what were you looking for? Like not just not just score wise, because you know, there's a lot of guys that can play solid golf and you look at the top of the leaderboard and you can find a few things there. What were you what were you looking for as far as players? And then also if you found it, I don't know if you ever found any players who were maybe diamonds in the rough or a little bit unpolished. What was it like finding them? What did you notice in them that helped you find them? I think the the biggest thing is you've got to have, and I even kind of have tried to kind of think like this a little bit as a as a on the professional side of things for my career too. Is you got to have guys that their sights are set one level higher than where they're looking right now. And it's not to say that they're they're putting the cart in front of the horse, but if just playing college golf checks the box for this kid, or, you know, when I was at Auburn, just playing in the SEC checks the box, like they're going to be unfulfilled. You know, they're going to get there, they're going to get the bag, and that fire may burn out a little bit. 
But I know you guys have talked to J.M. Butler. I mean, J.M. Butler wants to be great, and he wants to be great not only at the college level, not only the SEC level. He wants to be great on the PGA Tour. And so I knew if that was what was and, – and sure, everybody can say that, right? But you spend enough time with somebody, you, you ask enough questions, you ask some people things, you start to know that's the truth. And, and so that's what's ultimately going to motivate J.M. Butler to be – on the range at 7 p.m. by himself when it's getting dark because he wants to be great in the long run. And so that's that was always something, if I felt like somebody was just going to be, like they were searching to get to wherever I was at and that was going to be just good enough for them, that was a red flag. I mean, I knew I, I knew they would have excitement now, but I knew that excitement would, would fizzle out at some point. So, I mean, that's that's one of the biggest things. And, and I mean, Diamond to the Rough, yeah, just putting the whole story together. Grayson Huff was a, was a kid that, that really started playing competitive golf when he was 14. He was a great tennis player before that. And, you know, what? one other thing that, that's different there about Grayson, too, and, and I'm using these just as a specific examples. Um, guys you've had on the show, but both are, are kind of classic, two different stories, but kind of classic things I look for was Grayson believed he was good. Like, like even though he started later, I mean, that is, to me, that is the single most important thing. Obviously, we shoot a score, and, and it's easy to, to track that. But if you don't think you're really good at this game, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to humble you really quickly because I know it's, it's popular to see you know, some of the outbursts on TV and, and what gets you know, retweeted and, and clipped on Instagram of guys like negatively talking to themselves with a hot mic or whatever. But like ultimately, those guys think they're really good. They know they're really good, you know. And and to walk up and down a, a PGA Tour like at, at Tampa two weeks ago in Innsbruck, there's plenty of guys on that range that are not nearly as impressive as some of the college guys I see. But deep down, everybody out like for the most part, everybody out there thinks they're really good, and that's that's the difference maker. And and that was Grayson Huff. Like he hadn't been playing that long, and. You know, um, while there's a few things with his technique when he first showed up that I didn't think were that good, he didn't know it was that bad. And he thought he was pretty good. So there's some value to that. There's some value to, to thinking you're good. And um, he kind of always had that quiet confidence to him. And I think that's a that's a big key to why he's been able to have some success there is always had really good self-belief. That is cool. We've we've enjoyed our talks with both of those guys and really found them both to be very personable. And as you said about Grayson, really seemed like he enjoyed his time at Auburn, and both both of them have obviously. As part of that, you know, you get a product on the camp onto campus, like they work, like kids are out there working, and then you know we're the tournament code. We talk about tournaments, and I think one of the things that separates golf from a lot of other sports is the difficulty to re- recreate that tournament environment. And to me, like golf almost is essentially tournaments because. You know, there's playing for fun and that's, that's fun. That's good. But playing in tournaments is kind of where you see your, see what you're made of. Like you go play pickup ball, you can see what you're made of pretty easily. Like most, most things you can simulate golf tournaments just for some reason or another are unique in that facet. So you guys go to tournaments, you play golf, all that kind of stuff. But what was it like preparing those guys for the tournament? Cause I heard that you were integral as far as tournament preparation for them and getting them ready for those tournaments. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I think, you know, I spent a lot of time brainstorming, just trying to figure out different ways that we could be competitive every single day. I mean, guys by nature are just extremely competitive, right? I've alluded to that a couple of times today, but, but just having something on the line every day for them, creating an environment, whether you know, whether we had this this massive kind of dry race board in the locker room where we were keeping track of stuff, you know, we didn't do, we would maybe have a couple team practices a week, depending on our group a little bit. If we had some more freshmen that needed a little bit more guidance, we might have a few more. But it was a day where I would have something completely laid out and kind of a competition where they're going to get points for each one, you know, whether it's X amount of wedges at, from certain yardages to what we called sand pods to uh, short game competitions that, you know, require different things, all that. And then it tallied up to at the end, a winner. And, you know, that winner may just be 
they may just get to be Insta famous for a day and we post a picture of them on there. Right. But it was something to have them compete every single day and feel like there was something on the line, something to compete for. And then, you know, um, we tried to continue to push it a little bit to where maybe this would accumulate to the winner of this series of practice got a one stroke advantage in qualifying. Well, cause that, now that gets their attention. Now, now all, you know, I'm not just going through the motions, hitting these wedges. If I can gain a one shot experience, everybody, everybody on that team on a competitive team has been there when one shot has been the difference in them getting in the van or not. Um, and so, yeah, you start watching their their eyes light up a little bit when they've got a chance to do that, and I think that was that was the key to the environment is just always making those guys feel like there was something that they could they could achieve, and just trying to just take a you know a, a normal Tuesday and make them feel like this is a chance I can get the upper hand for a qualifier that may be a week away. So yeah, just the just. Always trying to be creative. All these guys are, um, they'll work as hard as long as they feel like there's something to work for. So, always trying to have some motivation for them. Absolutely. I mean, I'm sure it got their attention because that got my attention. That is a very unique way to go about it. And I really like, I'd never thought of something like that, but I really like the thought process that went into that. How do you structure, how did you structure qualifying? Were there exempt spots? Was it play for all five? What did it look like for you guys? Yeah, a little bit. It varied a little bit. The best qualifiers, honestly, were when everything was up for grabs, when it was straight up. And you know, a lot of times that was the beginning of the semester. And and it might be, it could be six rounds and hey, we're playing straight up for, for five spots. There was, there was an occasionally, there was, there was never really, I feel like, not many weeks where there was less than three spots up for grabs, you know, and, and you would have two coaches picks there. Try to do definitely one of the things from being a younger coach to, to where I was towards the, the end of my coaching career is, is it's definitely better to my opinion out there. It's definitely better to go ahead and put those picks out there up front because if you guys, if, if Daniel, you and Cooper are playing and I've just said we're playing for three spots and I'm going to pick two and you're both coming down 18 and you know, you're both kind of in that like four five, six role. There's not, you, you don't quite know where you stand. Right. And so the, the ability to kind of clutch up and get something done or, or make it happen. It, it's, it's a, it's in a weird spot. So I at least felt like if you made the exemptions on the front end, and the two of you were coming down the stretch and you knew like, even if you, if you didn't agree with my, my two exemptions on the front end, you at least knew where you stood on 18 T and that one of you probably needed to make birdie or, or, you know, you're playing a little bit of match play. And when you hold that putt on 18, you, you know where you stand. So that was, that was how it went for the most part. I think there were, there were some times where we would kind of hold on to picks and then, you know, guys would walk off 18 and go like, well, I hope he picks me. I'm not sure if I'm going to, you know, how it's going to work out. But I, I think just we evolved a little bit and tried to have some clarity there as to the guys know where they stand coming down the stretch. And that ultimately helps prepare them for those pressure, pressure situations and tournaments. So, so just to make sure I'm understanding it clearly, like you would basically exempt the top two guys on the team and then always qualify for three, yeah, four, five. And, you know, sometimes maybe there's an additional spot there as an individual or something, but, um, yeah, and, and usually, usually try to have at least fifty-four holes. You know, I thought anything less than that, especially you're you're playing some of the same golf courses in 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 a town, right? And you may have a freshman who's been around them four times, and you may have a senior who's been around them a hundred times, right? So, um, trying to at least have fifty-four holes to where guys could separate themselves um, was, was something I really tried to do there. So that was that was. Part of all that goes into even your tournament scheduling. You know, if if you scheduled your tournament schedule too tight, then you knew you weren't going to have the opportunities to have that qualifying, which then you ran the risk of the culture of the team could be a little off because whoever made that first tournament, if you scheduled tight tournaments and you don't have any qualifying in between, they feel like they get shut out for a month, right? And they don't feel like they get an opportunity. So that was all those things went into to factoring into to how you set up your schedule. 
so that it allows you to do at home what you feel like you need to do as much as, as on the road too. That is cool to see the kind of thought that you put into making sure that that culture was thriving. You know, when we talked about earlier at Guilford, what you did as far as practice rounds and preparing for the course at Auburn, you had more resources, maybe more time. Tell us a little bit about what you did to prepare for those tournaments with tournaments with practice rounds. I don't know, maybe like yardage booklets, other types of things that you had access to. Yeah. So um, yardage books, you know, when I first got there, if the PGA tour had played, you know, obviously the seaside course where we played SECs, uh, we had the Mark Long tour Sherpa books that had, that had been around. Right. But really like the, the strack aligned putt view books hadn't, hadn't come along. So this would be awesome. I, I shared this kind of junior camps with some players. You know, I was going into Google earth and I'm, I am basically, basically able to, to mask these holes. And there's, you know, there, I'm trying to think of what the, the, the books are called now they're basically a blank canvas where you can draw your own holes but i was we had some guys that couldn't draw anything so i i I had to take control of this and um, i would basically take the google earth images and trace them and print them and slap them in these books and basically create our own yardage books like i had you know a few key sprinkler heads and i knew from there from past years that it played six up or, or you know four down or whatever it may be but we were creating books like that. And then Stracoline and Putt View, thankfully, uh, came along because I was spending way too much time cutting and pasting these these custom yardage books. But, yeah, I mean, whatever it took to give us an advantage. You know, we had numbers in the book to where we weren't guessing. And so, you know, we had diagrams of the green to know that as as we marked it on there, you're standing back in the fairway, not understanding is it below that ridge or above it, like our guys knew. Um, so those were, were all the things we did from a pre- you know, As we advanced a little bit, we, we had a, a meeting room that uh, I would set up. Again, Google Earth continued to evolve. And we would actually run through the golf course, you know, hole by hole. And, and so while still the same thing applied that we talked about earlier, only one practice round in college golf, if I could sit down at, you know, especially with some of our freshmen and just kind of run them through the Google earth layout of the golf course, have them better understand everything. It just made, it made it a little easier, a little bit more expedited for that practice round. So we were, we were doing everything we could um, to, to make sure these guys were prepared. Um, even sometimes before we left the property. When it comes to like running through Google earth, I think Cooper and I both have an idea of what that looks like, but tell us a little bit like, what are you going through with them on Google Earth? Like you're not probably at least like Cooper and I did the same thing actually, like making our own yardage booklets. We we did that back in high school. Yeah, I can remember in college, even like my freshman year, we didn't have, you know, those type of yardage books you were talking about. So I did the same exact thing and it worked. But <laughs> the amount of time that it took for me as a college athlete, it's yeah. just totally and, and um, even that didn't make sense. E- but it, exactly. And it's what even I had to with do. Uh, qualifying for like a USAM a while back, Cooper went to that and I caddied for him. And we did, I I knew a little bit about putt view books, but wasn't that familiar with them and didn't even think of it as an option. So we had taken like one of the blue golf like course diagrams and had like these like full, like I'm talking full eight by 11 pages and had drawn, yeah. drawn everything on there. Uh, back before you couldn't do that. And so like I, we kind of get what goes into diagramming or like walking someone through a hole via Google earth, but tell us a little bit about what specifically you were telling them like, Hey, here's how this whole looks measurements, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And you know, it just, we would, a lot of times if, if I had Google earth up, they would already, they would have a yardage book sitting at the table. And so they could kind of make notes along the way. And it's like, Hey, this, this hole is going to look tighter than it really is, but here's the measurement and you drag one side to the other. And you're like, look, you, you've got 73 yards here, right at a perfect three wood for you. You know, don't feel like you've got to take less off this tee just because it looks tighter, you know, and just, just having them get, just get comfortable with, with some of that stuff. Cause practice rounds were always, you never knew if you, if you got a little bit of weather delay or something like that, you may not get to spend adequate time on every hole like you wanted to. And then just kind of understanding just, just around the green where your X's are and where your check marks are. Like a lot of, a lot of times a front right 
miss on a par five, you know, for example, might be a check mark to every hole location on that green. And, you know, and just kind of explaining, cutting the greens in half and saying when the pin's in the back half, this green's actually okay to be over the back of because it pitches down towards you and, and it's easy to kind of pitch back into it. And just going over stuff like that so that they get there, they've never seen the golf course, and then they open up their book and they've already got some some decent notes in there. That was the biggest thing, just just helping them feel more comfortable where, um, you know, from our past experience playing places, where misses would be and, um, uh, you know, just trying to take away some of the confusion that maybe some of the lines, some of the T lines would present for them. Yeah, just having that actual data, if it's the right stuff, can really free you up as a player. And that's something we always talk about is um, just having accurate data with stat tracking and, you know, getting the right stuff out of your round right. post tournament. And you were coaching right kind of around when Strokes yeah. Game first came out. What did you guys work with that right when it came out, or how did you guys track stats? Yeah, we what used a few track? different stat tracking programs and things like that. You know, the most beneficial as of late was kind of moving into the decade stuff, which which aligned itself very well, you know, with strokes gain and and what Scott Fawcett had done there to you know I think just to allow guys to understand just and manage expectations with strokes gain too, right? I mean, that's the best thing about strokes gain is we all think like anytime we get less than a nine iron in our hand, we should be getting it up and down. And it's just not the case, right? So, and, and just understanding that when we've got a five iron in our hand, if we can just hit the green and two putt, like we're gaining strokes on the field. And so all those things were, were big. And, and while we had some guys that really followed the decade system better as far as you know, making their adjustments to adding to and shifting to the right. You know, some of your best players, I think, already naturally did that a little bit. But I, I think the best thing that came out of it was just understanding the expectations. You know, if it, it is perfectly okay with this six iron in my hand to hit the green and two putt and and walk away here and and with my head held high. And it's just so many guys think like, you know, I, I just think we, we live in such a highlight based world that like these six irons should be cozying up inside 10 feet. And that's just not the case. Right. You know, tried to track some stats like that. It, it gave us some, you know, these reports gave us some strokes gain stuff that was beneficial. You know, quickly moved away from the old dinosaur stats I kept as a junior golfer of, you know, putts per round. It was like, yeah, I, I sure I could average 30 putts per round. I also averaged nine greens. So I was still terrible. But, uh, you know, so some of those things that we just spent some time as a kid doing, you know, Mark Brody has, has changed it all with strokes game. So, absolutely. I think that stats are something great to learn from. And that, as you said right there, I think strokes gained is one of the best stats out there to learn from even especially especially with putting i i would say again like it's important almost on all of them like dri driving for sure but like with putting it's so easy to see that 37 putts number or 35 putts number or feel that number because it feels like hey i was putting all day but when you actually get the strokes gain putting you can really quickly diagnose that i got we have buddies out who play on you know all sorts of levels of golf and some of them like to keep hard stats some of them like to keep like some more basic stats. And I understand why people might be reticent to keep certain stats or keep strokes gain because it takes time to enter in those things. But the one stat that like, if you're not going to keep strokes gain drive, you're not going to keep strokes gained approach. The one stat I would be keeping obviously is, is strokes gained putting because it's not that hard. You can pretty, you can pretty quickly like remember where you were. I think obviously the more accurate you are as to how close you are to the hole, the better as to that stat. But even then going back through the round, you can generally like put it together correctly. And that gives you a much better picture of how the round went for you. So talking a little bit, we've talked a little bit about stats. We've talked a lot about your time at Auburn, but obviously there's more than just your time at Auburn. Tell us how you ended up at Titleist and what you do there now. Uh, really kind of came out of left field a little bit. We were fortunate at Auburn to have some good support from Titleist. We had a lot of players that, that played Titleist product there that had been on some levels of support since late high school and, and things like that. So what are now my teammates would stop by campus and make sure that guys were comfortable with, with their equipment. We're in, you know, college is, is hard 
from an equipment standpoint, your body's changing, your swing's hopefully changing for the better. All those things change the fit of your golf clubs. And so we were fortunate to have a couple of my teammates, you know, once or twice a semester, always stopping by just to, to work with the guys and make sure they're in a good place. So I got to know them a little bit, you know, would also have some, some guys come and, and test golf balls with us a little bit just to, um, as, as things are changing on two-year rotations, making sure that these guys were educated on which golf ball is best for them. You know, and if they didn't need to make they they needed to make a change, um, understanding what those differences would look like. So, so I knew I knew this this Titleist team pretty well. You know, we had we had had some success at at Auburn, and it was a great place. And 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 honestly, was kind of one of those places you wouldn't just leave Auburn for for any head coaching job out there. I mean, it. So at the same time, the the. Maybe some of the the jobs that I had my eye on were the same jobs that coaches that were there now are probably going to stay there till they retire. And then if they did open, you you could bet it was going to be crazy competitive to to get that job. So kind of a similar story. I'm sitting on my couch, my phone lights up with kind of the head of kind of the next gen program at Titleist. I have his number, but not somebody that that calls me often, and says, hey, I'm, I'm coming into town next week. Would love to grab dinner and, and pick your brain about an opportunity. And we did that. We talked. And, and part of that was coming to Dallas and still continuing to, to work with college players. That, that's the bulk of what I do, college and, and high-level amateur players. I'll still do, I still do a couple tour events every year. I'll go here in a couple weeks down. It'll be my second LPGA event of the year. You know, so we try to help out where we can there too, but the bulk is still working with college players. And, um, you know, hearing those opportunities, digesting it a little bit, man, I, I just, I knew this was going to be a great opportunity. And one of those where I, I may have kicked myself down the road if I didn't take it. It's an awesome company to work for. I still get to stand on the tee with players and, and talk with them about what they're trying to do on the golf course. And I still feel like I could do put my coaching hat on a little bit in those scenarios. I think what our team is exceptionally good at is working with these players and understanding the big picture for them. Instead of just taking, you know, maybe, maybe your local club fitting, right. That, that happens with your higher handicappers, you know, those guys have to manipulate some clubs sometimes to, to make it work for these players, right. Or really draw bias. We're really upright. We're doing some of these things just to get the guy not to slice it. Right. But with us, we're, we're trying to understand where they're at right now with their golf swing, who they're working with, what they're trying to work on, and build their set around where they're trying to go. Instead of just saying, I could make this golf ball fly better for you today, is setting the golf clubs, golf clubs up in a way that they are going to fly best for them when they're doing what they want to be doing with their golf swing as well and performing there and educating them. I mean, you have... You have so many players that come in chasing like, man, if I could if I could hit this seven iron further, that'd be awesome, right? Well, like in a scenario of fitting, when we're on a clean lie on the grass and we're hitting a relatively full shot, like that's as much spin as you're ever going to put on it, right? And so if we dip into stronger lofts and things like that that make that, that lower the spin and make the shot go further, that looks great on the range. But that's not how we play golf, because as soon as your golf ball hops over into the first cut or as soon as you, you know, hit a little knockdown shot, we lower that spin from there. And now you've got this ball coming in hot and you're trying to play an elite schedule. If that whole location's in the front tucked or the greens are firm, you can't stop the golf ball like you're playing competitor can. So just trying to get those guys to understand how we set up your bag is not while, while I live on track, man, every single day. Just getting the numbers to be sexy and cool is, is not how we play golf either. You you got to have a holistic approach to how you're setting up the bag to allow them to, to have all all the opportunities they need at the highest level. That is cool. Tell us a little bit about more about what your role involves. You're the next gen. You're a next gen club fitting analyst. What does that mean? What when people like do, are people visiting you? 
in Dallas, or you, you, it sounds like you're visiting people too, but like when you're fitting them or in the process of that, like how does your team work together? And tell us a little bit about that. And then some of the things that when you're fitting players, not just like looking for, but maybe some more, some specifics about like, here's kind of what we think about, especially with these high level players. Yeah. So what it looks like for me, obviously I'm on a team that we've got a couple guys in San Diego um, that are part of my team that, that, you know, this next gen team that handles a lot of college golf. You know, I'm here in Dallas. We've got one in Atlanta, one in Pinehurst and one in South Florida. And so really kind of the Southern brims kind of covered. And that's so that we can travel within a radius to high level, you know, high level programs, which have, you know, some of the top ranked amateurs in the world there. And so going to campuses is, is part of what I do just to check in on players. Obviously I can, I can drive to a lot of them here from Dallas uh, that are within the big 12 or, you know, you've even got Texas A&M in the SEC. And then I'll go a little bit north there with, you know, Arkansas and, and Kansas and Iowa and stuff like that. But we all kind of sit down and map out where we need to go to take care of the players that, that we need to take care of um, and the programs we need to take care of there. But then we're traveling to tournaments as well. Like I just got back from Charleston last night where I was back to the, the Hootie at Bulls Bay where I'd coached many years at Auburn. So it was, it was uh, weird to be back there. Uh, the bugs were still there unfortunately, but now it, it was weird to be back there and, and not coaching, but it was, it was, you know, I worked with a couple of players on the range, just getting a couple clubs right where they wanted to be. And, and we're kind of almost like a, like a satellite tour truck those weeks. I, I usually have one full club glove and then one hard case with me as well, just to be able to, if somebody gets somewhere and the course is set up differently and, and maybe instead of a hybrid that week, they want to try a two iron option. Um, Sometimes I'll, if, if I anticipate that, I'll have those with me and, and gives them that opportunity. Or, or their golf swing's changing a little bit, and they just need to make a, a simple setting change on, on one of their woods. You know, now, now that they are delivering the club a little bit better, now we need to probably adjust that loft to, to get the, the flight and, and spin where it needs to be. So we're there. We're watching, evaluating players too. I mean, that's, that's a big thing is at the – at the end of the day, I mean, our program is put in place to identify these young players at a young age, build the relationships with them through college in hopes that they turn out to be the next Justin Thomas, Jordan Spieth, Cam Young, right? Because then they're doing what they're doing. You know, um, Cam Young's coming on. People are like, well, what's Cam Young play? What, what golf ball does he play? What drivers he play? And that drives people into golf shops. And that's why we do what we do. So that's that's part of our evaluation process out there too is hey this you know this kid keeps getting better and better and you know sometimes that's just the kid that like you're not going to be surprised if he breezes through his first year on Corn Ferry Tour. It's not always a you know because people out there too are like now that they know JT Poston, right? I mean that's a guy that doesn't have the same college background story as as a you know as maybe Justin Thomas another the other JT but people are now intrigued as to what's in his bag what's he play I see I keep seeing his name on on leaderboards and so you're trying to find those guys too that's interesting you know when I was on or when I was caddying for on the corn ferry tour last spring something I noticed was like all these players that are obviously really good you know one day before the tournament they're testing out new clubs they're switching out things in their bag and for me you know I played a lot of golf tournaments, um, none where you had a fitter on site, but I just couldn't imagine switching, say, my driver or my three wood shaft like the day before a tournament. So, you know, how do you balance like fitting someone in the most optimal club and, you know, keeping them comfortable with what they're used to? Yeah, I mean, I think there's got to be there's got to be something there from the player desiring a change, obviously. I mean, you're not I'm I'm certainly I'm going up and asking them how, how school's going. I'm asking them how their family is, all that stuff. And um, I'm not certainly looking to make any changes, but if a player's looking for something, you know, sometimes even if it's that day before or, or the practice round, it's like, hey, I just see maybe a little bit of spin out of my driver right now. You know, can you look at it? And we, we make one setting change, and now they see a, a flatter, stronger ball flight. They're excited. Now they, they feel like they've got new energy going into that tournament, right? 
and I think the, the key piece is, you know, having been a coach and, and on that side is, is how you word things to players too, right? Like, like Cooper, you could, this driver right now, you could go win with it this week, but I see what you're saying about it spinning a little bit. We could knock a few RPMs off and let's, let's change it here and hit a couple and see what it looks like. And you hit it and you're like, I love it. But at no time did I ever say like, man, this looks terrible. Like you're, you're, if I don't change it right now, you're going to really, you're going to really struggle this week. And so that delivery is, is part of it too, to keep those players. Like I said earlier, they, they have high self-belief. And so the last thing I would ever want to do would, would be to put any doubt in their head that they can't go win the tournament that week, uh, no matter if they've missed the last five cuts. So that that's kind of part of what we do too is making sure we say things in the right way to keep those players' mindsets staying at the highest level. That's a cool way to get to interact with players, and it's cool that you know you still get to get out there and work with them to a degree. I have only we only have a few more questions left, but one of the one of them right here is all right. You get to work with these players now, and you see you've been at a bunch of different levels. You've been a player. You've been a coach. And now you're working with Tyler. What are, what are some of the things that you've noticed or learned, like going back out there, like, oh, I forgot it was this way. I forgot that players were like this. I forgot about this environment. What what are some of the things that you've noticed in retrospect? Just the golf's hard, you know. I mean, it's um, it's really hard out there. And yeah, you know, I, I think a little bit when I was coaching, I wasn't playing as much. And when I when I did make the move to this side, I, I, I made a promise to myself I'd start playing a little bit more. And some would argue that, you know, I think I played 25 rounds last year. That's not still a lot, but that's a lot more than I was playing when I was coaching, honestly. So it was nice to get back out there and, and, and struggle a little bit, you know. Uh, it's one thing to to hit a seven iron or hit a driver, but, uh, you know, you, you left it in a bad spot and you got, you know, 54 yards over the bunker. That's, that's not an easy spot for some guys sometimes. And so, you know, I, I just think, Still playing, you know, just to have an appreciation for for how hard this game is. But, you know, I mean, players are, you know, they just, the ones that are extremely internally motivated are, are seem to be the guys that, that separate themselves. There's so much external out there right now. But at the end of the day, it's like the, the guys that, that want to be great and, you know, they don't want to the same thing. They don't want to just make the field next week or this, like they, they, they want to keep pushing it to be great, to be the best there is, is, is still the separator, just the internal drive there. High, high self-belief and, and guys that, that are aiming beyond the, the level that they're currently at is, is, is still the, still the separator for sure. That is cool to hear. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to join us. The last question we ask every guest is, if you go back to yourself as a junior golfer and tell yourself one thing, what would that one thing be? And then in your case, because you still kind of, you know, work around the junior landscape, if you could tell a junior golfer just one thing, what would that one thing be? The one thing is, is, is if you want to be great is sacrificing the now for, for the future that you want. You know, I had, there's there's so many things, so many fun things to do when you're young, and, and you got to have some balance. You can't just beat balls all day. But you know how you're using your time, how you're treating your body. Sure, you could you could stay up late with buddies, you know, the night before a practice round or whatever, and it would be fun. But getting rest that night and be ready to go that's that's sacrificing that night for maybe playing well that weekend and then rolling that into better, better stuff. So I think that's just, it's hard. It's hard for guys to understand that at a young age that, you know, some of the, the fun things out there will still be there one day, but if you want to be great as, as a young player, you know, just, just doing working when other guys aren't working is, is the best way to get an advantage. So sacrificing now for, for the betterment of the future and just try to enjoy it. This game's hard you know try to try to enjoy it the best you can so that, that would be the advice i think that that is spot on if if people want to find you on social media reach out to you learn more about you from you where can they find you or reach you yeah i've got um you know i've got instagram and and twitter um i think things have converted i think it 
all Corey Maggard or Corey underscore Maggard now at either one of those. Probably pretty easy to spot me, probably with a, a white golf hat on in the, in the profile pictures there. But uh, yeah, so on there, not a not a huge following, but uh, like to uh, like to read through what's going on out there from time to time. Awesome. Be sure to give Corey a follow. And then if you're listening to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please subscribe and leave us a rating. And if you're listening on YouTube, please like and subscribe. This helps us get our message out to more people. And if you're trying to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Tournament Code and on Instagram at The Tournament Code. As always, we enjoyed talking with you and look forward to diving in deeper to what it takes to play elite tournament golf. 